welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. You'll enjoy conversations with amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have all taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker. They do so by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, that is, after introducing participants, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will be helpful to you to hear the stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Welcome once again to author and specialist in nonviolent action, Rivera Sun. Today, Rivera continues her Changemaker story. You will discover the powerful lessons she's learned by listening carefully to the perspectives of others and her hopeful prediction for our future. First thing I often advise people is to look around in your community and see if anyone else is doing uh, organizing on this issue already. That's a good first step. Do a little uh, research. Um, Dr. King actually had four steps, which are very handy for new people. One is to do your research, you know, find out everything you can about the issue, about the conflict around the issue, and about what the solutions might be. And I said solutions plural, because oftentimes when we're working for justice, we get very fixed on one particular solution. And when it comes to trying to work on the conflict, we might want more than one up our sleeves. Um, then you want to establish with your group, what are your non-negotiables? Gandhi said that if you're in negotiation and you give up on your fundamentals, that's not negotiating, that's losing. (laughs) So you need to know what you can't negotiate on, what you have to stand firm. For example, drinkable water, right? That might be an issue you can't back down on because you have to drink the water. On the other hand, uh, if you're a teacher going on strike and you want, you know, a living wage and you want uh, better tech for the classrooms, it may be that well, some small percentage of your living wage is, a, is negotiable, but below that is not. Or these types of computers are negotiable, but getting some computers isn't essential, must be done. You also want to like see if you can resolve this with dialogue. Most groups, when they get to the point of nonviolent action, have already tried that and it hasn't worked. But it's often good to consider whether or not you're you're reaching for direct action when you could try going to have a conversation uh, with someone. We had a local issue in the main town I grew up in where someone put up a really offensive, discriminatory sign, and many people wanted take the nonviolent action of writing letters to the editor. And uh, my sister called me and I said, if anyone wants to go down and talk to the person, maybe that's a good first step. So we went down and had a conversation. It turned out that his goal with that sign was to make people feel comfortable. 
and his goal was completely not getting met by that sign because everybody else in the town saw those discriminatory slogans that were know this, know that, know this kind of person, know that kind of person. And they didn't feel comfortable. They felt very uncomfortable. And by the time she walked back to her car, drove around the block and came back home, the sign had already come down. Right? So check about dialogue. Third, uh, you might, if you know a lot about nonviolent struggle, you might know already how to, what type of action you need. Um, but if you don't know a lot about nonviolent struggle, you might want to check out Nonviolence International's website. They have 300 methods of nonviolent action on there with case studies. You might also want to do a quick search like I did and look for some short manuals. There's a lot of stuff online about basic fundamental concepts about how to organize, uh, having to do with how to use not just one action, but a set of actions to build cumulative campaigns to achieve your goal. How the types of actions are a little bit different. Protest is not a strike, is not a blockade, and they all act a little bit differently. And then you want to do an assessment. What are you going to need to achieve that? the types of actions that you're going to need to do to get your goal? So do, do your strategy work and do your assessment work before jumping into action uh, because you'll find out what kind of resources you need. You might need some legal support. You might need some uh, creative support. You might need to draw in some allies from your community to stand with you. For example, there have been numerous teacher strikes in Chicago, Oakland, and recently in Canada and Ontario area where the teachers uh, wanted to go on strike, but many of their students uh, were low income and they would have challenges getting lunches. So in Oakland, they organized a strike solidarity team that fed lunches to the kids for the entire duration of the strike. In Ontario, they organized a, an alternative school so that parents who were working could drop off their kids um, to get education and also to, to be looked after, right? These are things that you think about in order to maintain your actions um, so that you can achieve them. If you don't think of these kind of support and solidarity actions, the parents get pissed off at you and the kids have to go to school and you can't keep up the strike for as long as you need. Right. So these are the kinds of things that you think about. I have a study guide call uh, that goes along with my my novel, The Dandelion Insurrection. And it's designed for people who have read the book, but it can also be used by people who have not read the novel at all. It's designed for both groups to use them. And um, if you've read the book, then what it does is it takes the novel and it shows you how to make it real, like people were asking. If you haven't read the book, then you just can apply all the, the sessions to your own work in your community. And it will go over a lot of the things uh, we talked about just now in greater detail and give you tools that come from the field of nonviolent struggle. I didn't invent them all. That kind of guide you how to through how to think strategically about the work. Um, ironically, these are actually things that I don't just use in my actual organizing work. I also use them in my novel writing work. Uh, so what I tend to do with my novels is I replace the use of violence with the use of nonviolent action. So in the Dandelion Insurrection, it's a nonviolent movement for change and it's slightly fictionalized US. But I've also written a series for younger, to include younger people, 
I always say that because it seems like the older people love this series even more than the dandelion insurrection, uh, and maybe even more than the kids, but the kids are really, really relating to these books. They're fantasy, which is a genre that is full of violence, like almost obscenely so. For a genre that claims to be as inventive and creative to, enough to come up with dragons and magic and alternative world, worlds, they're really not very creative when it comes to violent conflict. It's almost always there. And that's really a failure of imagination. Uh, what I have found through studying nonviolent struggle is that nonviolent struggles have all of the epic mythology, the epicness, the incredible proving of the heroes or sheroes, uh, the courage, the valor, the, um, the archetypal uh, characteristics that we love in our violent mythology. So the work I do is to weave those uh, elements from the nonviolent canon into the stories. Uh, so in Ariara's books, you might have her stopping a war instead of winning a war, organizing peacework. You have her organizing with fellow youth to end an exploitive labor situation that's leading the two countries to war with one another. Uh, you have another situation where she and her aunt are organizing for women's rights in, in a mythological kingdom. These are, this is the way that we can blend social justice and nonviolent action into all the elements of fantasy that we really love. I mean, people love the Lord of the Rings. They love Harry Potter. And with good reason. These are great stories. They teach us how to be heroic. They teach us how to overcome challenges or to work with friends and companions to achieve life-saving quests, right? That's all very worthy. But ultimately, if nonviolent action is twice as successful as violence, maybe we should be using that in our epic mythology and training ourselves to think that heroes aren't the ones who slay the demon, but the ones who stop the demon, to stop the problem with nonviolent action. Maine has the distinction of being one of the whitest states in the nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was... Uh, a young child, I lived in an old mill town uh, where the mill had long since closed, was pretty economically depressed. And yet a church group started bringing in Somali refugees during the war and the famine in the uh, early 90s. And suddenly, for the first time in many of the people I lived with's lives, they were meeting people of a different race. Not only that, they were Muslim. <laughs> so... We found out very quickly that our community was quite prejudiced um, mm -hmm. and that there needed to be work to be done to teach people how to be inclusive, to be tolerant, and to uh, recognize the beauty in one another. Uh, and that was not an easy process. I wouldn't say it's a finished process either. Mm -hmm. It's something that the uh, community continues to work on, sometimes in a very positive and powerful way and sometimes in really sad ways where we fail to uh, rise to that challenge. But what that taught me as a young person was that it's not necessarily automatic that we're going to just, even with the best of upbringings, be the kind of human beings that our world requires today. Mm -hmm. And so understanding where our biases are, where our prejudices are, uh, 
and recognizing that we're caught in systems and structures that are built on racism, sexism, mm -hmm. uh, all the isms we can think of, classism is another big one, um, is really important for trying to navigate a, a global society mm -hmm. and for trying to recognize that whatever I, I want for myself as a human being, other people also need and want. Like they want mm -hmm. safety, they want um, well-being, they want security and stability economically, they want to be accepted uh, by their community, they want to, the freedom to be a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. We don't all want to be the same. Um, we want to be able to walk down the street and not be afraid of violence. Mm -hmm. So and the, the list goes on. And what I've learned as, as I've grown a little bit older and I've been out in the world a lot more and I've been listening, I do a lot of listening around these, um, is that we are really more alike than we are different. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways. That's a quote from Maya Angelou. Um, and that we have a lot of, especially in the United States, we have a lot of hurts, uh, a lot of trauma, a lot of pain inside of us. And no, I'm not just talking about black and white divisions. I'm talking about mm -hmm. men and women from the history of sexism and the oppression of women. I'm talking about ageism, which goes both ways in this country. I'm talking about class issues or rural-urban divides. As a person who grew up in a rural environment, man, I see that one all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had to unlearn the kind of stigmas that uh, urban privilege tends to look at rural communities with mm -hmm. and to recognize that where I came, came from is a beautiful place, a place that struggles with many things, but also has its own unique uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. So. Writing novels actually has been a wonderful way to um, have an opportunity to learn a lot about people. The other thing that I've done in my life is I used to host radio shows, weekly radio shows, and I would interview people from all kinds of walks of life and hear their stories. And uh, sometimes I would have guests on the air who espoused views I really didn't agree with um, mm -hmm. or I really didn't get. Right? I would hear something like, as an example, like reparations. The first time mm -hmm. I heard about reparations, that was very challenging for me. Mm -hmm. And I had to look at what, what is it that makes that challenging for me? Mm -hmm. why, why do I have resistance to that idea? Um, and to listen to the stories and to listen to what people are asking for and why was very informative. Mm -hmm. So when I think about this patchwork world, it really makes me think about the fact that the complexity of the world we live in is actually a gift, but it's not a gift that we just walk in and unwrap and enjoy. Right. It's like you got to read some owner's manuals. Yeah. You got to learn to put it together. You right. got to learn to uh, figure out what to do with yourself and the humanness that you are. Uh, so I, the last thing I want to say about this is that uh, because I work with nonviolent struggle, Nonviolent struggle itself is a global field. This is not something people who look like me invented all on their own. I mean, people who look like me actually have a great long history of nonviolent struggle, uh, but we certainly are not the only ones. And the best ideas and the best practices uh, come from 
all walks of life. They come from the women of Liberia's mass action for peace who stopped the civil war. Uh, they come from uh, the indigenous struggles of the Amazonian tribes who have protected the lungs of the planet over and over and over again. They come from the civil rights movement. They come mm -hmm. from uh, Gandhi's liberation struggle. Uh, they come from all over the world. And to really learn the depth of the knowledge in this field requires a certain humility and a certain beautiful humility of of letting go of the ingrained superiority that we as Americans or as educated people or as white people are taught by our society. And it's a, it's a real thing. It's a real problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and recognizing that when we don't know, we have the opportunity to see how much other people know, mm -hmm. how many tools and resources and experiences they bring to the table for us to learn from. Yeah. One other thing nonviolence uh, teaches me is that you're always learning. Mm -hmm. So is the editor of Nonviolence News where I collect 30 to 50 stories each week. What I realized very quickly in this journey uh, with this project is how much more there is to learn. Uh, I know a lot about nonviolence struggle, but I am learning new things every single day, and I am learning from people all over the world of all backgrounds uh, how we can make change, how we can address the real conflicts that we face. And um, I find that really beautiful. I find it really empowering. I find that we have more tools than we think, more resources than we think, and far more power than we often think. I feel like nonviolence is actually the unacknowledged heroic story of our times. It's one of the most remarkable achievements of humankind. We talk a lot about the internet. We talk a lot about going to the moon when we think of achievements. Uh, but the ability to deal with grave injustices that we face without resorting to violence, using this, this field that is diverse, that is effective, that is versatile, that has 300 methods of nonviolent action that has been used all over the world for thousands of years by everyone from your grandmother to, you know, um, Martin Luther King and Gandhi. This is what I think is one of the humankind's most powerful achievements to date. And I just hope that people will learn about it. They will uh, join in with it. They will step into what I call the lineage of nonviolence and they will add their stories to the field. I think we will, um, if we could look back on a vantage, from a vantage point from 100 years from now, we would be amazed at what's going on. Thank you so much, Rivera, for sharing your changemaker journey with us. I encourage you all to look for her books and subscribe to her nonviolent news weekly publication at www.riverasun.com. I guarantee you will find both fictional and real-life inspiration you will want to share with others. If you missed the previous episode with part one of my conversation with Rivera Sun, you will want to look that up so that you can hear the entirety of her special take on homegrown solutions for a patchwork world.
Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own Changemaker journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.